Hello. Written in 1967, but published in 1974, Philip Larkin's poem, Annus Mirabilis, opens with these verses. Sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me, between the end of the Chatterley Ban and the Beatles' first LP. Up to then, there'd only been a sort of bargaining, a wrangle for the ring, a shame that started at 16 and spread to everything. As Larkin looked on with envy at the sexual revolution, so as a, an old man, I sometimes look with envy at the hookup culture. I remember the logistical and emotional hoops I had to jump through as a late teenager in my 20s to achieve physical intimacy. I think of all the types of women and maybe some men too I would have liked to have experimented with when I was full of vigour and lust. But a new book suggests that my envy might be misplaced. Getting what you think you want might not be the same as getting what you really need. Is it time to rethink sex? Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by the columnist and author Christine Ember. Her new book has the intriguing title, Rethinking Sex. And it is, as the cover of the book states, a provocation. Welcome, Christine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I, I want to talk about the core thesis of the book and some of the many issues and questions it raises. But I do think it's important or interesting to understand a bit about your own background, because in a sense, your view of sex can be seen to have gone through a kind of dialectic of thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. <laughs> That's a really interesting way and rather noble way of putting it. I think that makes sense, though. I, partially because of my religious background and upbringing, my parents were evangelical. I grew up in sort of that Christian tradition, began having sex later than my peers. At first, I was, you know, thinking through a purity culture ideal of waiting until marriage. And then I decided not to do that. <laughs> and so sort of entered the sexual world. And then in the process of growing older and talking to more people and simply even thinking through this book, tried to, you know, sort of unify my understanding of what I thought sex looked like and what it meant and what it meant for me. I think it gave me an interesting perspective on the questions, first being, as I put it in the book, outside of the sexual circle and then very much in, because it gave me a space to first think through, or rather see and think through the sort of cultural assumptions and pressures that would push one to have sex even while I was trying to abstain, and what was sort of being said about what sex should be, what role it should play in our lives, what it should look like, and noting that for me it didn't actually have to be that way. And then sort of entering the field, as it were, and seeing for myself how much or how little those assumptions truths or can'ts about what sex should be held up. So when you look back on your teenage years, you may not hold the same religious convictions as you held then, I don't know, but but is there a sense in which you, you think it was a good thing that in a sense your culture protected you from 
the kind of obsession with sex, which may be more normal amongst kind of people in as they get into their later teenage years? That's a really interesting way of framing the question. I mean, I think that both sort of inside religious circles and outside, there are pressures that can be unhealthy. You know, within purity culture, although I, I think I escaped the worst of that, there is in some ways an idea that sex means everything, that it's a sign inside of virtue, that it's sort of a very important thing, but we're not supposed to talk about it until you're married. And then on the opposite side, in you know a sort of more secular culture, a secular understanding, it begins to seem like sex is everything. You know, you see it in media, you see it in culture. It's almost assumed that to be a modern, liberated person, you should be having sex, you should be having lots of it, and also enjoying it to a certain degree, while also at the same time saying that sex doesn't really mean anything. The act of sex is just another act among many, which can be a little bit confusing, I think. One thing that I would say about, you know, having a religious tradition and a set of long-standing assumptions about sex that have been held for, you know, throughout millennia in some ways, is that they do contain some truth that can still and very much actually are still useful and helpful. You know, the idea that maybe sex is meaningful, maybe it's an act that is in fact unlike others and thus should be treated with a certain form of respect. Perhaps the idea that, you know, you do have a duty to think of other people, that you owe responsibility to those outside of yourself, and that your desires should not necessarily be paramount over other people's good. Or even the idea, in fact, that seems far more commonly understood in religious circles, or at least held to be a truth, that we have desires and desires are important, but also we don't have to give in to every desire. Every desire does not necessarily need to be satisfied. And that it's also worth asking sometimes, is this longing moral or ethical? Does this help me in the long term? That's fascinating, Kristen. I, w- I want to explore some of the core themes of the book, and I've given myself a little mnemonic, so I'm going to do it around four Cs. So I'm going to start with the first C, which is consent, and a very powerful argument in the earlier part of the book, which is that the notion of consent has become a kind of reductive catch-all in a sense that as long as there is consent to sex, then there is nothing else to be talked about in terms of, as it were, the kind of morality of it. And you want to argue that that's a very kind of hollowed out idea of what the foundation should be for, for good sex. Absolutely. I think that's one of the core threads running through the book, Rethinking Sex, The question of consent is a a really interesting one. I mean, first of all, it's incredibly important to say that consent is essential. It's a non-negotiable baseline, and it has taken us, you know, the sexual revolution, the feminist movements, a long time to even get to the place where we can say that that's the case. And yet, consent is a baseline. You know, it's a floor. It was never meant to be the ceiling. So much of our conversation when it comes to sex revolves around defining the limits or how far something can go before it crosses the line and becomes outrageous or even illegal. And consent is, in some ways, a legal criterion just like this one. It defines sex that's allowed because you've gotten consent as opposed to sex that's not allowed 
because you haven't gotten consent, sex that's in some ways criminal. But why do we settle for asking what's legal rather than what's actively good? You know, if consent is the only standard by which we judge sex, and we say that once consent has been gotten, you know, between two consenting adults, everything after that, you know, takes place behind a veil of non discussion, we're punting on really big questions whether that consent was fairly gotten, whether it's even good for us to be doing what we've gotten consent to do, what exactly it takes for an encounter to actually be moral or ethical. Because I think most of us want more from our relationships and sexual encounters than this wasn't technically assault. We want them to be good in a real sense. And consent doesn't ask about the good. No. And, and the idea of consent has, has, I think, developed in a way that's very positive, that, that whatever the circumstances, implication, assumption is not right. Consent should be enthusiastically affirmed. And looking back to when I was younger, I know that's a norm that would have made me more thoughtful, maybe a less selfish person. But I think you want to suggest that in rightly moving the bar higher, there's a danger that we think consent is the only issue. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, as we've sort of realized that consent has not fixed some of the problems in our sexual culture, that it hasn't made them go away. And we see this in the Me Too movement, you know, where many of the defenses for certain acts were, well, this was bad, but the other person consented to it, so it was fine. We see the limitations on what consent can tell us. And so we've kind of ratcheted up and tried to define and redefine and better define consent. It must be, you know, not no means no, but yes means yes. Not just yes means yes, but affirmative, not just affirmative, but enthusiastic. But that still doesn't necessarily address many of the problems underlying the question. You know, why do people consent? What might make someone consent even enthusiastically and still allow the act to, you know, not be good? And then also, just the idea of framing consent as the main question is exactly as you say, a little bit of an odd way to look at relationships and in some ways can feel somewhat unnatural. It almost feels like we are staking out a sort of goalpost that we have to, you know, leap over and, you know, make sure to check in on later in our encounters or as our encounters go on. But I think most people's experience of encounters is that they're they're fluid, they're ongoing. People's minds and feelings can change even as an encounter goes on. Sometimes, many times, I think people are not even fully aware or fully knowledgeable about what they are thinking or feeling at the moment. And so consent can be kind of hazy in those circumstances. So then what should you be doing? Consent doesn't really tell us. And also it seems to me that the notion of consent, and this takes me to a second C, which is commodification, the, the notion of consent is almost as it were a contractual notion. It's almost like, well, look, at the point of consent, the contract is formed. And beyond that point, as you would say, Mark, it's caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. You've consented. If you don't get what you want, well, you know, you consented. So that's the way it is. And that notion of, of sex being understood through a kind of market frame, a consumer capitalist frame, is also a theme of the book, that hookup culture, that sex has become kind of transactional, just another domain of consumer choice. And that's another thing you want us to think about, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. I think that, you know, 
A friend of mine described this book as being ostensibly about sex, but also in some ways being a critique of how we understand the concepts of contracts, of, of freedom, of living as liberal autonomous individuals in, in a marketplace. And sex is a locus of that and exemplifies so many of the trends in our society that I do wonder about. There is a section in the book, a chapter in fact, where I talk about dating gaps and how they have helped to train us in a sort of lived understanding of ourselves and other people as commodities in the marketplace. You know, you have apps like Tinder or Bumble that are set up to look like a deck of cards and you're swiping through different people, you're swiping through faces. This does lead people to view others as in some ways disposable, as rankable. And even as you swipe through other people, you're also thinking about where you yourself fit into the marketplace, how well you will do. There was a story that a young woman told me as I was interviewing people for this book, where she described ordering a guy off of Tinder and sort of using that to brag that she too could have no strings attached sex. And as she said that, I ordered a guy off Tinder, she stopped and was sort of wondering aloud why she formulated that phrase in, in the way that she did, in a way that sounded so cold and utilitarian as if this guy was nothing more than a piece of pizza or something. And I think that this commoditization and this transactionalism, this viewing other people as objects in a certain way, has really influenced a lot of our sexual culture. And again, thinking of consent as an agreement between two parties where you sort of contract to allow a sexual act to take place that you can get something from someone else, basically, feeds into that. But yet there are other areas, Christy, not there, that are areas of intimacy, emotion, vulnerability, you know, whether it's funeral directors or oncologists, if you're paying for medicine or psychotherapists or masseurs, and we pay for their services. So what's wrong with the notion of us buying sex like any other commodity? So I think you have to and I think what I try to do is ask people what they wanted from their sexual encounters and what they believe sex to be to ferret out why this understanding might be misplaced, at least in this case. And you know, when I talk to people about what they're looking for in sex, in sexual encounters, in relationships, they don't say that they're looking for a service. People say that they want relationships of care. They want empathy and listening. They, they want someone who is responsible for them and who they can be responsible to. They want to be in relationship. You know, they're not looking for a one-time experience that they can buy. They could get that somewhere else. And so if you want a relationship that's not contractual, I think most people, when they think of, oh, I, I've met this person, I, I want to have sex with them, I want to be in a relationship with them, they're not thinking, oh, I want to be in a market-based relationship with this person where we each contract for each other's services. They want something deeper and more intimate and more meaningful that transcends sort of the economics of the marketplace. But if you treat sex as, you know, this marketplace activity, you're actively choosing against the sort of relationship that many people say they, they really want. And that mismatch has a whole host of problems. Well, it's interesting, Christian, you use the word people, because my next C is contrast in the sense that another argument that you explore in the book, which I think is really important, 
is that actually men and women's experience of sex is different. And that part of what you think has slightly gone wrong in the discourse is the way in which, as it were, to an extent, it's been the notion of liberation has been associated with women becoming more like men in terms of their forms of desire and their experiences of sex. And whilst you obviously want to avoid a kind of reductive view of of how different genders experience sex, you do want to argue that it is different for women. I do. Yes. One of the chapters in Rethinking Sex is simply entitled Men and Women Are Not the Same. And I think that one of the ways that we can helpfully interrogate our sexual culture and figure out where we have faulty assumptions is to ask questions about what we expect equality to look like, what equality really means. I spend a good amount of time in Rethinking Sex talking about what the feminist movement aimed for and sort of where we've ended up. And I suggest that the early feminist movements really did have a revolutionary idea in mind, smashing a a sort of patriarchal system that centered men and male ideals as the ideal and suggested that women have to live up to that or become that in order to succeed. And instead, we're pushing for a society where men and women were seen as individuals who, you know, maybe brought different qualities and experiences to the table and should be valued as those individuals. But instead, in the modern moment, it sometimes feels as though equality is now premised on women becoming more like the ideal man. So say a boss is still the ideal, and post-feminisms would say, you can be a girl boss, or playboy is seen as the ideal, and equality is, well, there are now playgirls too. But that really does elide the differences, I think, between how men and women move through the world and might experience sex, whether it's biological kind of timeline differences, and that for women who want to have children, for instance, having sex and finding a partner may take on a certain urgency that a male partner may lack, and then that changes the power dynamics in any encounter or the fact that men tend to be bigger than women. And so consent may look different if you feel threatened by someone else who is larger or stronger than you. Or even the fact that you know some research shows that women tend to experience more sexual satisfaction in longer-term committed relationships and less from sort of one-time encounters than men do. How does that change what we should be looking for in our sexual encounters and the standards that we need to have so that both parties can be having good sex, as it were, rather than one party you know, having a good time and the other not? Yeah, and when I read that chapter, it reminded me of one of my favorite rock tracks, which is by a 1980s band called The Au Pairs, who had a song which was, You're Equal But Different. It's obvious. And I thought about the book on a number of occasions. One of the reasons I found it so incredibly engaging, Christine, was I felt, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, that there must have been moments of me writing the book when you kind of got up from your desk and you thought, well, can I say this? Am I willing to enter into this territory? Am I willing to court controversy in this way? And in each occasion, I don't know, maybe there were things you ducked out of, I don't know. But in each occasion, it seems like you went back to your desk and thought, no, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to explore this. because, And this is so valuable because in a way, you open up debates, which which I would have 
found difficult to raise myself, you know, thinking of the kind of standard trope of a few friends around for dinner, what could you talk about? Quite a lot of these subjects, it feels to me that if I started a conversation, it's so hedged round with the dangers of misunderstanding or caricature that you kind of wouldn't bother at all. And what's great about your book and why I want other people I know to read it is it allows those conversations to breathe in really interesting ways. And suddenly they're not so threatening. Tell me, were there moments, Christy, when you were writing it, when you thought, oh, am I really going to enter this difficult territory? <laughs> That's a great question. And you're completely right. I, I think that I had that experience at, at almost every moment. Almost every chapter title, in fact, is one where I, you know, I started writing the chapter and was thinking, oh, oh, no, <laughs> I guess we have to do this. <laughs> but, you know, the point of this book, Rethinking Sex's title is subtitled A Provocation for that reason. I think that so many young men and women especially, but really people of all ages, are experiencing a sexual culture that feels painful, that is not helping them, you know, reach the goals that they want. And they want to move forward. We want a way to fix this. And the only way to sort of move forward from saying, oh, this is this is bad. We agree that this is bad too. Okay, what do we do next? Is by having an honest conversation. And so in this book, you know, I'm I'm trying to set the table for that honest conversation about where the sexual revolution and feminist movement hope to take us and where we've ended up, about whether we're over-relying on consent as a rubric for understanding what good sex looks like. And yes, some of the questions I'm raising in the book inevitably raise hackles and made me nervous bringing them up because so many of these topics feel a little bit taboo right now. And because they explicitly challenge some understandings that we have assumed are settled or because they will push readers, including myself as I was writing it, frankly, to reconsider their own actions under a new and perhaps harsher light sometimes. But this is what we need to move forward. So someone has to do it. And I'm really glad that you have. And let's go to the final C, because this is another startling chapter heading of your book. So the final C is casual sex. And I want to link that to your idea that sex is spiritual, that that you want to argue in a sense that there's just a problem with the very idea of casual sex. It's just really a misunderstanding of what good sex is. It cannot be both good and casual this must have been another moment when you thought, am I really saying this? <laughs> yes. So I think that one of the one of the key questions that we have to ask and answer for ourselves if we're thinking about how to create a better sexual culture is simply what is sex? What is sex? What does it mean? What does it mean for us? And what do we want it to look like? And to answer that clearly, I think you actually do have to recognize that sex intuitively for many people is, for the majority of people, I would say, is meaningful. And you know, that doesn't mean that every sexual act is sort of a transcendent, world-bending experience. But so many of the people who I spoke to, and I interviewed just dozens of people for this book, when I asked them what they felt about sex and why sex might be a different experience from others, as they had said, you know, they said things like, well, it's so intimate. It feels like it touches something deep inside of me. It's, it can be transcendent. I spoke to a woman actually about her sexual assault 
for this chapter, Sex is Spiritual. And as she was sort of thinking through her experience and why it had affected her deeply, she said, you know, it would have been easier maybe if he had just like punched me in the face and stolen stolen my phone or something, but sex is different. It's a different sort of activity that we do with people. It feels like it means something and feeling like that was taken in a way feels much more deeply painful than just any other kind of assault. And that sort of intuitive feeling that sex was different came up again and again in these conversations. And in that chapter, I also drew on a number of, you know, sort of religious texts from Christianity to Buddhism, Judaism. And, you know, there's this millennia long understanding that sex can be an act like any other, in part because it can even involve the creation of another human being. And if sex is that different, if it is that meaningful, then it suggests that we should treat it differently than we treat other activities, that we perhaps should have higher standards for what we look for in our sexual encounters, that the way that we talk about it and value it might need to be different. Yeah, I want to explore this a bit more, Christine, because I think I am with you in accepting the case that, as it were, the best sex, the sex that will mean the most is that sex that has that relational depth to it that feels meaningful in that sense that it, it it's a, about a lot more than kind of you know physical actions but yet sex plays many roles in our lives and just as i would never say to anybody the way to live your life is to get high all the time i might accept that getting high sometimes is what people do just because they just need to let off steam they just need to escape whatever it might be can't sex also, can we accept both ideas that in a sense, the best sex has this spiritual quality to it, but yet it's possible to have other forms of sex, as long as they're consenting, of course, which meet our needs in less deep ways. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think that's the second part of the question. You know, I try to make clear in that chapter that, you know, part of the reason why people feel that sex is different is that it is in some way different to them than, say, going skiing or shaking hands with someone. And so perhaps we should think about treating it differently, but also acknowledging that, yes, exactly, not every sexual act will be transcendent. That said, you know, again, what people say that they're looking for in sex, in even single encounters, is something like care, something like empathy, something like list being listened to. There's another story I tell in the book about a woman, actually, who is telling <laughs> this rather body story of a one night stand that she was having with a lover. And her partner says, okay, this is just a one night stand. Let's not talk about our feelings here. Let's just, this is lust. And she says, can we not just love each other for a single day, for a single moment, just this moment between the two of us, even though it's a casual encounter, even though it's a one-time thing, there's still hopefully a standard of care that we can have for each other in this moment. And so that's actually why, I, and I think that sex is very contextual and that there are sort of all different kinds of encounters and reasons why we might enter into a sexual encounter with another person, but we can still have 
sort of moral and ethical expectations for what a good encounter looks like. And so that's why I suggest that the standard of consent is necessary, but a little low. And I suggest instead the idea of willing the good of the other as a better standard for sex, whether it's, you know, a long-term relationship or a one-night stand. And willing the good of the other comes from Aristotle by way of Thomas Aquinas, and it was his definition of love, not necessarily romantic love, but sort of the respecting of the human dignity of another person in an encounter. And willing the good of the other would involve simply willing the other person's good, willing your partner's good in any sexual experience as highly as you would will your own, just caring as much about the other person as you care about yourself and also trying to figure out what the good looks like in any particular circumstance, whether it's casual or whether it's long-term. And so you can do this in casual encounters. You can will the good in a one-night stand in sex that's you know not particularly transcendent, but it's just something that you want to do in the moment. But it does take thought and practice, and doing so recognizes that you know, sex is something that could and should have a moral component that you want to live up to. Finally, Kristen, I'm really interested in the reaction to the book. I mean, I've read a couple of reviews and, and other comments, and there seems to be almost a sigh of relief from people about your book. Oh, thank goodness that, that somebody who's progressive and thoughtful has written this book and opened up these debates. Has that been the general reaction? Have you had any pushback? That actually has been the reaction, and I am I am kind of pleasantly surprised by that, but not totally surprised. I think that in the modern mainstream, especially in certain strains of feminism, we've happened upon what I've described as sort of an uncritical sex positivity, the idea that to be a good modern progressive or liberal or feminist, you have to view sex as something that you achieve. You're always up for it. You say yes to things. Being progressive means being open to anything and not really having boundaries because boundaries are in some way conservative or it's seen as regressive. But actually, that is a form of unfreedom, even in and of itself. That's yet actually another, a sort of pressure to have sex in a certain way that a number of people, a lot of people, I think, question or feel ambivalent about or even resent, even as they acquiesce to it. And I think opening up a space to be critical of that, which is not to say anti-sex, but to actually ask questions of, you know, is this the right assumption? What does sex actually look like for me? Do I have more options than either being totally closed off or open to anything? It's something that a lot of people were looking for. They want to feel like they're not weird or crazy for feeling somewhat uncomfortable with a totally liberated sexual culture and want a space to talk about what other and better options might look like. So I'm glad that they're seeing that in Rethinking Sex. Thank you, Christine. I, I found your book deeply engaging. It, it opens up some important issues about how we live our lives and conduct our relationships today. But I, I think it also explores some profound philosophical questions. It's a book I wish I had read when I was younger and that makes me look back on my past attitudes and behaviours with a more self-critical, hopefully slightly wiser perspective. But to end on a lighter note, Christine, I've also got to say thank you. Thank you for removing once and for all my envy for the Tinder generation. <laughs> 
Thank you. Goodbye. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.